Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Uncommon Paradigm. Today, we're talking philosophy, but not the old man staring into a night sky wondering what life really is type of philosophy. It's a new age philosophy that surrounds a new global revolution that aims to answer how, as humans, we can live in harmony with nature, how we can use nature as models to solve our global problems, and, and why we should use nature as a mentor, not as something to be shaped and molded to our desires, as it has been for so long. My guest today can help answer these questions. He achieved the title Doctor of Philosophy at the prestigious Oxford University. He gained his postdoctorate degree at the Institute of Philosophy at Lyon, France. He currently teaches environmental philosophy at the University of Shanghai and University of Lyon, and is here to discuss his book. Dr. Henry Dix, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So I just wanted to jump straight in because I am cautious of the time. And I know that you are an incredibly busy man. Your academic background in the research to this uh, was quite phenomenal. Myself, I dropped out of college twice. Um, I had no intention of university life, but I've always admired someone that, has, that is capable of going through the system. The one question I have for you personally is the structure of the academic life. Are you well suited for? Or is there something more that has allowed you to have such a, a high standard of learning from different universities? Yeah, I mean, I'm not your typical academic. So I was, you know, I did come up through the system in, in quite a classic way. Um, but since the end of my second postdoc, I've done all sorts of different things. So I don't work in one place as a lecturer. Um, I'll be writing a book and then I'll do a visiting fellowship and then I'll take a teaching thing one place and another thing somewhere else. And there's always different things going on. Uh, and with working from home as well, it's kind of easier to do this. So I do most of my teaching in France, sometimes, you know, driving, flying, getting the train out there, sometimes teaching online. I was in Saint-Malo two weeks ago doing a whole week's teaching out there. Um, so it's, it's kind of a nice life, you know, traveling, working from home, doing what I want, um, not earning as much money as I might like, but, uh, you know, enjoying it all in the process. Oh, that's brilliant. And as a child, were you always geared up for this life? I don't know about the academic life, but philosophy was something that hit me really early on. So I'd be in, you know, a physics class and I'd start asking questions and they'd be like, I can't answer that. That's a philosophical question. And the same thing in maths, the same thing in English. And I was like, well, hold on, you keep on telling me I'm asking these philosophical questions, but what is philosophy? And one of the reasons I got into uh, French philosophy and studying philosophy in France is that in France, philosophy is a massive part of what you study at school. So in England, if you do A-levels, like at my school, there was no option to do an A-level philosophy. So I had to kind of discover it myself and then gamble on studying this subject that I never really studied before at university, which is what I did. But in France, in your final year at school, you will have several hours of philosophy, whatever your you know, choice of other subjects. So, yeah, I was really sort of impressed by that and, and spent a year in France studying philosophy as an undergrad and then went back there during my DPhil and then again for two postdocs. So. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite interesting. Did you feel up to the task? Did you feel qualified? You said that you've moved around a little bit in that sense. Yeah, I mean, if I'm completely honest with you, um, when I was younger, you know, as an undergrad, master's, even a doctoral student, I wasn't necessarily that comfortable doing lecturing, right? Standing up in front of 40 people and talking about a difficult subject, right? You know, 
Kant or Heidegger or whatever it is, you know, that, that's quite intimidating. And then you have all these kind of big wigs in the philosophy world who've been doing it for years and years and have, you know, CVs that are 20 pages long. And no, I mean, it is quite intimidating. Um, you know, there's so much stuff that you, you need to really know. And when you're young, you don't know it. And yet you still got to go out and make out like you have something to say, which, you know, I felt like I did. Looking back on it, I didn't really, but you know, at, least I, at least I had the kind of you know ambition at that point to you know make something of a life as a philosopher. But yeah, it was it was quite intimidating at times. What I found in your book, I am three quarters way through it. Uh, I'm reading it on my off time at work, um, so I have a, a noisy machine in my ear on my right, and I'm trying to read your philosophical text uh, <laughs> at the same time. Wow. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and. Although it is, I won't say an easy read, but it is a very intellectual read. Um, I, for myself, am very curious about most things. So for me, it was, I won't say easy, but it was a pleasurable read. And the thing I like about your writing style is that someone might view philosophy as a old person subject. And you kind of bring a modern spin to it. You have a modern idea. Biomimicry is a modern, at least in my understanding, a modern subject. Um, has this always been the path that you've been destined on or is this uh, a recent step for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I always wanted to do something original, shake things up a bit and, and and not just, you know, take the classic questions and provide, you know, yet another answer. And, and I always had the feeling that philosophy should engage with non-philosophy, as it were, you know, the, the, the world around us, whether it's science, technology, you know, I'm interested in, you know, you were saying you're curious. I mean, I'll, I'll chat to anyone, whether it's an economist or an anthropologist or whatever. And I had this idea. I also think that philosophy should be able to change the world, right? If philosophy is thinking about the fundamental questions, then at any point in history, there are certain questions that are particularly important that I feel that philosophy should have a go at addressing. And I realized when I was doing my doctorate, early on in my doctorate, that the big question for humanity today was basically the environment, right? Climate change, you know, running out of resources, collapsing biodiversity, right? These, these familiar topics. And uh, an old man philosopher, right, would say, oh, well, that's not a, topic for philosophy right because Aristotle didn't write about it and Descartes didn't write about it and, and so on um, but I felt that you know I've got quite a historical take on philosophy I feel like it should be trying to sort of think where we're going you know, I was interested in Marxism before not so much because I'm a radical communist but just this idea of using philosophy to change the world um, and and so I had this idea that you know the world needs uh, an environmental philosophy and so I worked on that for years um, but I felt like I was lacking some content, some original content. And I found that in biomimicry. Um, I find biomimicry uh, an incredibly you know, inspiring movement. But I'm also aware of the fact that that movement, despite the success it's had, hasn't really engaged with philosophy and philosophy hasn't engaged with biomimicry. And so my book, the basic idea behind it was to take biomimicry, take philosophy and, and put them together. That is very interesting. And you, you touched on it there. I find that biomimicry... I um, I almost had to go out and look for it, but once I did find it in uh, in that subject of biomimicry, which you describe in the book, is a lot more than just imitating nature to solve human problems. You broke it down quite phenomenally, even for a layman like myself to understand. Um, I thought biomimicry had had its time had its time in mainstream media 
when a, a train, I'm going to butcher this fact, but I think it was in Japan that was modeled after a kingfisher's beak yeah. or wind turbine blades modeled after a whale fin. Um, these sort of things that was almost, uh, ah, cool, but you know, what next, you know, sort of thing like that. Um, is biomimicry or better put, is the biomimicry revolution just imitating nature? Um, no, it's not. It's not just imitating nature. It's more than that. But even the imitation of nature, um, there's a lot more to say about that or a lot more in the way of examples you can give um, than just the sort of ones you were giving. Often in the media, there are these kind of kooky examples, you know, some sort of novelty technology. And often, you know, they're not that important, right? This Japanese train, um, it's not really changing the world. Some of them are quite big, right? Velcro. Have you come across that example before? So Velcro, there was this Swiss engineer and he was walking his dog and the burrs of the burdock thistle stuck to the fur of his dog and he studied that and developed Velcro, right? But there are always these kind of mini isolated, isolated examples. And what you don't get is the feel that, that I have, having investigated it, there are entire domains of research that are either biomimetic or draw on biomimicry or could very reasonably cons be constructed and perhaps even sort of reconstructed, rethought as biomimetic. There, there are just so many areas. Um, the whole of artificial intelligence, right? What is that? It's basically the, the attempt to reproduce the intelligence of humans, animals. ChatGPT. First thing I did when I went on ChatGPT was to say, hey, ChatGPT, are you, are you biomimetic? And it went, yeah, I'm biomimetic because I'm basically modeled on the structure and function of the human brain, right? I mean, that's kind of another kooky example, though it's not usually given as one because, you know, it's not this sort of paradigm example of, of biomimicry. Um, agroecology, right? This idea of basically doing agriculture ecologically. Well, that's all about taking principles from the way that ecosystems work, learning from them and applying them to ecology. Industrial ecology is basically the same thing, but with industry. Um, you know, there, there's, there are so many areas that biomimicry is, is, is happening in that. Um, but all of that is still the technology side. And I try and show that you can develop a kind of environmental ethic based on trying to sort of emulate and be like nature, right? Basically trying to be ecological. And there's also an epistemological side to it. So epistemology is the idea, um, well, it's the study of knowledge. And, um, you know, there's a whole chapter in my book about, about the knowledge we can get from nature, right? This idea that there is knowledge in nature, that nature is constantly generating and that we can learn from. Yeah. And you do give a good summary uh, in the book, in the different chapters of it. The parts of the chapter I want to delve into is mostly all of them. Uh, everything in the book that could be a whole episode in itself, I find. My interpretation of, of the introduction, at least, was the framework to understand biomimicry has to change. It has to be updated. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. You say that we need to go back to a pre-Socratic way of thinking about nature. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think you could develop um, a philosophical take on biomimicry without saying everything that I said, right? And I look forward to other people writing books and interpreting it all differently and interpreting nature differently and the human relationship to nature differently and so on. But what I do is I go back to the ancient Greeks, um, partly because their view of technology was that it imitated nature. 
right? So you already have this view of technology as imitating nature. And one of the things that made that possible was the conception of nature that they have, right? Um, if you have a different conception of nature, you're not going to think about imitating. If you reduce nature to some sort of mindless material, right? This is sort of what happened in the Industrial Revolution. Nature was reduced to just matter and energy. And all the ideas for technologies were thought to come from humans, right? We were the only beings that had mind and intelligence, right? Anyway, um, so I went back to the ancient Greeks and sort of developed um, their idea of nature as, as physis, which it, it gets quite complicated, I have to admit, but physis, I then interpret as self-production. So I draw on Maturana and Varela, two Chilean biologists, Edgar Morin, uh, a French philosopher, and then Martin Heidegger, who's, who's a big reference in the book, and developed this new way of, of thinking about nature as physis, which then makes the other principles of, well, it makes the rest of biomimicry, um, you know, work better as well. It fits with that. And I'm glad that you pronounced that word. I was having a hard time. Uh, so it's spelled P-H-Y-S-I-S, physis. Physis, yeah. So it underlies physics, right? It's where we get the word physics from. We get physiology from it. And, and, and in fact, the, the word physics, it, it's kind of halfway between physics and physiology, right? If it could give those two words, it's because it's kind of nature. And, and you know, one take on nature is, oh, the physical, right? You know, the universe. And the other one is more nature in the sense of when we talk about destroying nature, right? Or when we talk about an environmental sense. And then it's related more to physiology, right? You know, living beings and how they're organized and their functions and so on. Hmm. Yeah. And in, in the chapter one, I think it is uh, labeled as nature as physics. You have a, a paragraph in there that I find was very intellectually dense, but also quite meaningful. And it, it spoke to our current times, or at least gave a good framework to understand where we are in, in society now and our values. The question to you is how can biomimicry answer the model, measure and mental framework? Yeah, I mean, this idea of nature as model, nature as measure, nature as mentor, um, goes back to this book by Janine Benyus, Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature, which came out in 1997 and basically launched the biomimicry movement. But within that movement, there's been very little reflection um, on history, basically. Um, you know, Benyus will say things like, oh, um, you know, previously we had the Industrial Revolution and now we need a biomimic revolution, which is about taking nature as model, measure and mentor. And, you know, having studied a lot of history of, of philosophy, what I tried to do was say, well, hold on, haven't there been, you know, other things that have held this role? Um, you know, God in the Middle Ages, man from the Renaissance onwards. Um, there was also... Uh, a phase that was very much what one might call anti-mimicry. So this was sort of during the, the Industrial Revolution, in fact, and, and uh, you know, early 20th century. And this was the idea that we shouldn't be imitating anything, we should be creating, right? The idea of human beings as, as creative, um, which went hand in hand with what I was saying earlier, with this idea of nature as just sort of raw material and energy to be shaped by us and our, our creative minds. You know, and, and the result of that is reducing nature physically to raw material, right? Destroying it and turning it into wood and iron and plastic and what have you. And then putting our shapes on it. So that's, you know, that's disastrous environmentally. And, you know, it also means that we can't learn from nature if that's how we're seeing it. Um, 
but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to think about you know how we position ourselves, right? Do we do we put God above us, right? Is He going to be our model, measure, and mentor? Um, if there's no God, don't we become the kind of the supreme being, right? This is kind of what happened in in humanism, right? This idea that we were above the rest of nature, somehow superior to the rest of nature. Um, but, you know, but God maybe didn't exist anymore. Um, uh, you know, that's hugely problematic, I think. And and now with biomimicry, there's this possibility that, in fact, you know, we're actually screwing everything up and nature knows better than we do. Right. And that then creates a new possibility for humility. Previously, we could be you know, humble with respect to God. Um, in biomimicry, you can be humble with respect to nature and say, no, in fact, look at how ecosystems work. Right. They run on solar energy, they recycle everything, there's no pollution, there's huge diversity of species. You know, we can look at that and say, that should be our model, our measure, and our mental. In the coming years, we're going to need a framework to understand this. I feel with the work with David Attenborough is doing with pushing out how amazing nature is in the hopes of inspiring um, everyone, but mostly the younger generation to actually look after nature. In one of the documentaries I watched of his or another one on YouTube, it was talking about symbiotic relationships between different species. And I have never really heard of that. I've always been curious and have stemmed into different rabbit holes that I was unaware of and then learned massive amounts from. And one of them that actually hit home just this weekend I was out in the garden um, pulling some weeds out and I happened to see a load of ants on a, a small shrub. So I inspect closer and they were walking over aphids. And then a light bulb moment happened and I remember watching one documentary that was how ants and aphids, or a specific type of species of ant, have a symbiotic relationship with the aphids. They essentially farm them. These aphids have long probes on their nose that they suck up the sugars from the plant host and then excrete honeydew, <clears throat> a uh, sugar-rich liquid that comes out the other end. And the ants use that as fuel, take it back to the nest, and the cycle goes on. Would that be a example of biomimicry? Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that could count as biomimicry would be if you take some specific symbiotic relationship and then somehow you know, imitate that or learn from that specific relationship. I can't think of an example. Um, but you also have this idea um, that there are lots of symbioses in nature, right? Uh, in lots of, you know, in ecosystems, there are all sorts of symbioses. And, um, you know, the idea that we could have a more kind of symbiotic way of being both with one another and with nature is quite a common um, theme in, in the biomimicry movement. It, it can run up against problems, though, uh, if you start seeing, you know, that as a model for human relationships. It's not so much that symbiosis can't be a model. It's just that in nature, you don't only have that, right? I mean, a lot of people in, in, in the 19th century, there was this idea that, you know, there was this sort of Darwinistic conception of nature, which didn't necessarily correspond to what Darwin himself said, right? But that basically emphasized nature as competition and predation, you know, nature red in tooth and claw and so on. And that was then seen as somehow justifying, um, you know, kind of the, the excesses of capitalism, right? The kind of everyone in it for themselves. Um, 
and, and, and the problem is if you start trying to base human relationships on something in nature, well, nature is very complex and you find all sorts of things. So the idea that nature is sort of perfectly symbiotic and so we can take that as some sort of model or measure for us is, is, is a bit simplistic, just as, just as the Darwinistic view of nature as being sort of competitive and red in tooth and claw, you know, that that's a problematic um, model. I only really think that I think that nature can help us inhabit the earth, right? So the, the subtitle of my book is Learning from Nature, How to Inhabit the Earth, right? When it comes to being ecological, there's no better measure than nature. Um, but when it comes from getting on with one another, um, there might be things we can learn, but I'm not sure that nature holds all the answers. That's, that's, that's interesting. I think there's a uh, human bias that is to simplify a complex matter. Um, and potentially that is what uh, we are doing. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the idea of imitating nature, as I said earlier, goes back to the ancient Greeks. And there were these modifications in other periods in history, but it wasn't explicitly rejected, right? The ancients were, you know, no one came out and said that Aristotle was wrong about this, right? Until the 19th century, Hegel came along and said he was focusing more on art, right? But he kind of included, you know, technology in that as well. And he said, you know, the traditional view is to say that, or the most common opinion is that art imitates nature. And he said, you know, I completely disagree with that, right? And then a load of other people were focusing more on technology, said the same thing. What I argue is that as philosophy of technology emerged because it only emerged in the 19th century previously technology hadn't been isolated as an object of philosophical study and when it was the founding idea of it was that technology doesn't imitate nature um, the, the philosophers at the time said look the reason why we haven't been getting anywhere is that we've been trying to imitate nature look at all those flying machines with their flapping wings they don't work right it's only when we invented the jet engine that planes actually work and so that was this idea that imitating nature was where we've been going wrong for, you know, millennia. Kassira talks about how not imitating nature is the fundamental principle of modern mechanical engineering, right? And modern mechanical engineering basically underpinned the Industrial Revolution. So, yeah, you know, and, and this, is, this is unknown. People know that the Industrial Revolution has been damaging for the natural environment you know you can easily trace the problems we have back to industrialization you know the use of fossil fuels and factories mass production what have you but it's not as widely known that underpinning all of that was the rejection of this old idea of technology as imitating nature and i think we need to you know return to that idea but we also need to kind of you know, modernize it as it were, right? You know, it needs to be adapted to the environmental context. It needs to draw on the science of ecology, which the ancients didn't have and so on. Right. And our world is vastly different than what nature, aside from humans, has produced. So we can't really find every answer just looking in a forest. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, that I, I did this project on biomimetic cities. So that was when I started working on biomimicry. So I was living in Lyon. I put together this project working with you know, engineers, biologists, and so on. And the kind of slogan that we had that we didn't invent, we took it from um, Braungarten McDonough, who wrote this book called Cradle to Cradle about the circular economy. And 
in this book, they said, imagine a building like a tree, a city like a forest, right? So that was the slogan for the work that we were doing. And I mean, it's a beautiful idea and cities don't work like forests right now, right? But they could do one day, you know, even just putting solar panels on buildings, you know, photovoltaic panels work completely differently from natural photosynthesis, but they at least reproduce the function of natural photosynthesis, which is to generate energy from the sun, which is a lot better than, you know, burning coal, for example, right? Uh, so that could be a first step. And I think that it's quite possible that, you know, what I call the biomimicry revolution is in its very earliest phases. And we're just, you know, latching on to some of the most important ideas as we look to move towards a different, more ecological civilization, right? Renewable energies, the circular economy, right? These are these are key ideas, but all of that can be worked through in such a way that, you know, cities resemble forests more closely than simply by generating energy from the sun, right? Maybe in the future, we'll be using artificial photosynthesis. Maybe buildings will be made out of, of you know, mainly out of wood, right? Just as, as trees are in their own way. Maybe rainwater will be managed completely differently. We won't be using sewers. Rainwater will be infiltrating into the ground as it does in forests. Yeah, there's a whole new way of doing things that it might take a long, long time to put into place. So we all might live, what you're saying is we all might live in an avatar Pandora world. Well, no, because technology would be a big part of it. So it's not, it's not just simply going back to nature. Um, it's not going and living in a forest. It's living in a city that works like a forest. Ah, that's very interesting, actually, you say that, because there is, in my mind, there's a disconnect between living harmoniously with nature, which is to get rid of all technology, to resort back to the Middle Ages, where you have your own homestead and that's your plot, and now you're living a good life. And it, yeah, what you say is quite um, thought-provoking, that you can actually have, at some stage, a relationship with technology built in with nature or vice versa yeah I, one of the images i, I don't really um, use this image in my book quite as much as i might though it is actually kind of the, the front cover of my book so my book here right so one, one of the concepts I, I talk about in my book is the clearing right and and the the front cover of the book has this this sort of image of, of a clearing and th there's an image you can use to talk about the human relationship to nature which is basically this. Imagine, just to simplify, that the world is a massive forest, right? That the earth without humans is, is, is a massive forest. And that we are in a clearing in the middle of that forest, okay? Now, whether that clearing was just sort of naturally there, whether we cleared it by chopping down the trees, whether it was a bit of both, um, could be either. But then the question is, well, what should we be doing in that clearing? Right. What should we be doing? Should we be chopping down the surrounding forest until there's none left and digging up all the metals and building, you know, things out of concrete, metal, glass, whatever, like we do now? Or should we be studying how the forest works and doing things in the clearing that work like the forest and which because of that, you know, can can basically fit in with the rest of what is going on in the world, right? With the surrounding forest. Now, my answer is that we should be doing the second one, right? Um, you know, I mean, right now, I am sitting, in a sense, in a clearing in a forest, right? The whole of the UK pretty much would have been covered by forests. And going back a long way, you know, the Middle Ages, a lot of this went on. It wasn't necessarily perfect harmony with nature back then. 
You know, deforestation was what made possible civilization because in the open lands that resulted from chopping down the forest, we did agriculture, industry, and cities. And the, the simplest idea of way of explaining biomimicry, you can explain it to a child almost, is to say, you know, all of our agriculture, all of our industry, all of our cities, they should be taking the nature that was there before us, that is still there around us, that would be there if we weren't here, as the model, the measure, a mentor for what we're doing in the spaces that we have cleared. Wow, that is powerful. It gives us the the optimistic ambition to find that way. At the moment, I find um, from various media sources that have infiltrated through the algorithm to get in front of my eyeballs, is that we're almost in um, conjunction between the industrial revolution mindset, take everything where you can, and the, the naturalist view, which is to go back to a simpler time. It almost seems, at least in my understanding, the cultural consciousness, there's not another avenue. There's not a third option, which is let's combine both of them to help everything. Yeah, I mean, biomimicry can be can be seen that way, right? Um, as a kind of, yeah, like a sort of a third way, right? Um, there, there are still questions though, you know, how, how high tech does it need to be? Um, you know, because there, there are sort of low tech and high tech variants. Um, a lot of indigenous people, people's, um, you know, an important principle for them is, you know, learning from nature, you know, but it's not using high technology, right? So there are simple ways of doing it, using local materials, you know, maybe um, making things out of wood, whatever it is, right? Just sort of learning from how nature does its things. Um, yeah, there are, you know, um, farming systems that, you know, indigenous people have in clearings in the forest that have basically, you know, reproduced the structure, you know, the, from an ecological perspective, the kind of structure of what they're doing um, is an imitation of the forest. Uh, there's a debate about whether they do this intentionally. And a lot of people think they don't. A lot of people think that that's actually just the only sustainable way of doing it. And so through, you know, processes of trial and error, they've ended up, you know, learning to do what the forest has learned to do, right? In, in their own world but you know in a sense it doesn't matter how you get there but the advantage of, of doing it deliberately is you might get there a bit quicker right rather than working out how to live on this planet sustainably through trial and error we could look at the natural systems that are there that already do it and and learn from them you know it might speed up the whole process yeah and what i find talking with you at the moment henry is that you have uh, you you exude optimism for the future Whereas mainstream media is quite the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, often when I've talked to people about the, you know, the environmental crisis, they're like, oh, it's just so horrible, I don't even want to think about it, you know, I want to bury my head in the sand and so on. But I think once you start working on it, I mean, there's a limit to what I can do as a philosopher, right? I don't build anything, I don't make anything. But, uh, you know, I think if you feel like you're an actor, right, if you feel like you're doing something, then you can feel more optimistic. I mean, that doesn't mean that I think we're gonna overcome all the obstacles. I don't really know, you know, no one does. Um, but I think there's a path there. And all I can do is try and work us towards that path, you know, think that path and try and get other people to sort of join me on it and work with other people and learn from them, right? Because, you know, I don't know everything. There's, there's loads of things that I've missed. Um, you know, even since I published my book, it came out in March. You know, there's already tons of new stuff that I've learned, things that I'd have done differently, you know. Wow. 
that's incredible is is uh, a a symbiotic symbiotic relationship between other humans advancing in their own specific ways and coming together or at least that could be the the idea um and then the second is almost like a relay race you're taking the baton as far as you can in the time that you're given and it may be in a hundred years someone will read your book and it will spark an idea in them that they, they can take the baton a bit further mm. yeah that's that's a nice idea i mean it's yeah I, I, I might be wrong, but I, I genuinely think that, you know, this biomimicry revolution, I, I, th I think it's, you know, I think it might, you know, your, your show is called The Uncommon Paradigm. I think it has scope to become a paradigm for how we live on this planet for centuries, you know. So it's a really exciting time to be alive in that respect, right? I, I remember when I was um, uh, an undergrad. And I was looking for, for meaning, right, as you do, as, especially as a philosophy student. And I was looking at the world around me and, you know, attending political philosophy classes. And there were, you know, discussions about whether we should be, you know, more to the left or more to the right on taxation. Right. You know, centre left versus centre right politics and so on. And I found all that pretty boring, to be honest. It's not it's not important, but it didn't get me excited. I was interested in Marxism because it was revolutionary, but that felt like it had been tried and, and didn't work, right? I'm sure there are some interesting ideas in Marx that are perhaps still relevant today, but, you know, the communism as it was implemented didn't work. Um, so then you're looking for, you know, a, a new path. And, and the environmental crisis, while it's incredibly dangerous, it's also this incredible opportunity to, to, to re you know, think and transform everything that we do. Um, and, you know, I think the world could be not just more sustainable, but a lot more beautiful, a much nicer place to live if we, you know, based it on nature rather than doing, you know, carrying on doing what we're currently doing. Mm, that's very true. So then how do we do that? What is uh, nature as a measure? How do we learn from nature to inhabit the earth? Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of technical way of implementing the concept of nature as measure, right? So let's say you want to build a city um, based on the forest that was there before. You want to transform the city. You could study the ecological performance of the forest that was there before, right? You know, the, the, the levels of nutrient cycling, um, you know, the, the, the purification of the water and the air and so on. And then say, how can we get closer to that? That's our standard, right? you know, the natural ecosystem that was there before. How could the city get closer to that? So that's a kind of technical way of applying it. But um, in my book, I talk about a kind of, you know, what, you know, a sort of deeper, more ethical way of applying it. So, and, and here I, I, I basically um, take this idea that to take something as measure is to want to kind of reproduce its success, right? It's to emulate it. And what I argue is that the, what we should really ultimately be trying to emulate is, is the earth, right? I, I talk about Gaia, so I draw on Gaia theory. Um, and the way that the earth works on my take of Gaia theory is that it basically provides and maintains a habitat for living beings, okay? Um, and, and so I put forward this idea of emulating or being like Gaia, um, which would be to also try in everything that we do to ask ourselves a question, you know, is this providing and maintaining a habitat for living beings, not just for human beings, but for all life. You, you get a similar idea in, in the writings of, of Benyus and the Biomimicry Institute in America. They say life creates conditions conducive to life. Okay. 
And that is basically their ethic, right? That's what life does. And it's what we ought to do as well, right? And it's, it's, it's simple, right? Creating conditions conducive to life. Is, is there a better principle for what we ought to be doing than that? No, that's powerful. And now that we're at the frontier of space exploration, it's almost worthy of going back and looking at how we on the planet can look after it. Everyone knows that we're gifted with such an amazing place that it's almost half of us are trying to get as much as we can out of it at no expense of the future. And then the other half is breaks on entirely trying to go back to a more sustainable way. And we have billionaires that are trying to develop different technology on Mars or the moon or other planets that have no life instead of directing resources at the place that we do know has life, which is here, the Gaia. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's certainly not a good idea to start concentrating our efforts on, you know, colonizing other planets when we haven't even worked out how to live on planet Earth. But if we do work out how to live on planet Earth, uh, and, if, and if biomimicry is, I think it must be, is, is a key part of that, then that will, if we ever do move on in, you know, several hundred years or whatever to space exploration, that will be key to, to, to doing that. Um, NASA invests a lot of money in biomimicry. Why? Well, if you're going well, to, you know, live on another planet, that's going to require an ecosystem. Okay. Well, what sort of ecosystem are you going to build? Well, you're going to build one like you, on Earth, right? With water and oxygen and everything being recycled and so on. So, so biomimicry is a big topic in space exploration. Now, the very idea of terraforming is, you know, trying to make another Earth somewhere else, right? It's kind of copying the Earth somewhere else. Um, there was, uh, have you heard of the Biosphere? Pro no, what was it called? Was it Biosphere? There was a project in Arizona to make, uh, it was called Biosphere 2. That was it. A project in 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 the I've desert in Arizona. You haven't heard it. It was a bit like the Eden Project in Cornwall, um, only it was this completely closed system um, that sort of reproduced the uh, ecosystems of different parts of the Earth. And humans spent several years in there, you know, trying to get by, you know, farming and what have you. And the idea was that that research would be useful for various things, including space exploration. Now. Ultimately, the whole thing collapsed, right? It got overrun with pests and what have you, and oxygen was leaking out or whatever it was. It, it, it all went wrong, okay? But that was an attempt to kind of recreate the biosphere, right? Biosphere too. It was, a, it was a, a massive exercise in biomimicry. And if we ever do make it into space, we would be practicing biomimicry, right? We're not just going to turn up on some habitable planet with trees and stuff. That, that seems improbable. Wow. Yeah, and if we did uh, turn up with a place that has all of the resources, we would be less inclined to look after it. We'd be more industrial revolution mindset, I think. Well, that, that would be the danger, yeah. That, that would be the danger. I mean, that's what you see in, in, in Avatar, right? That, that sort of industrial revolution mindset, you know, turning up, extracting the raw, raw um, materials rather than, and, and you know, in, in, in Avatar, you also have the idea of Pandora's kind of like Gaia, right? This kind of system of life and symbiosis and what have you. Yeah, wow. The zeitgeist of our culture of our times, the, the spirit of our society at the moment. I know I alluded to it and so did you a while ago. Do you find we're in the biomimicry revolution or we're, we have a foot in the door? Where on that scale do you find us now? Yeah, um, I would say 
that it's happening, but we haven't joined the dots together, right? So I mentioned chat GPT, right? That's just one example, right? Um, there, there are just so many fields that are now turning towards a new way of innovating based on learning from nature, okay? Uh, so I think that is a kind of a new paradigm that hasn't really been recognized as such. And, and part of the problem is that, you know, you have biomimicry, then you've got biomimetics, and then you've got bionics, and then you've got bioinspiration, and then you've got, you know, bio-inspired design, and then you've got all these other fields that use these principles, like, you know, the idea of nature as model, which is kind of common to them all, like you find that in ecological engineering, in permaculture, in evolutionary computing, artificial intelligence, what have you, right? Um, but, but we see all these different fields, the people working in these different fields don't realize that other people in other fields are using similar methods. And we haven't understood that that is all part of a revolution. And we also, to the extent that people are aware of that, they only see it as a technological revolution and they're not aware of, you know, the ethical dimensions, the epistemological dimensions, the ontological dimensions that I try and focus on, uh, you know, in my book, which tries to interpret biomimicry as a kind of a general philosophy, not as just a philosophy of technology. You've given me hope in the sense that what you have just said is a... Uh, how do I put it? It's the undercurrent that swims underneath every different industry and subject that you've just described that if everyone just focused their attention on biomimicry, we could almost have a unifying idea. Yeah, I think I think that's missing. I mean, part of biomimicry is just the idea of being ecological, right? And a new way of inhabiting the earth, a new way of being, being ecological. And you know. Everyone kind of wants to be ecological, whether it's by recycling or growing their own veg or, or, or whatever it is, right? So, you know, it, it chimes in with fairly simple, common ideas in the environmental movement. But you're right, it gives it more sort of structure and, and philosophical content. Um, I mean, maybe not everyone is, is up for the philosophy side of things. I had someone write me an email the other day and said, you know, the last thing we need is a new philosophy. What we really need to do is cut our fossil fuel use. <laughs> you know, there is that sort of pragmatic um, take on things. But that, that's not how I think, right? I, I think that we need, you know, ways of understanding the world that, that, that philosophy could provide. Yeah, I think we have an, a, a, enough spokespeople for the climate alarm. We need more people like you, the optimistic uh, pioneers. Thank you. <laughs> the uh, the different aspect, uh, aspects of environmental ethics and its relations to our virtues. What is that? Good question. So in my book, I talk about three different approaches to environmental ethics. One is to focus on the question of, you know, who are we doing it all for? Are we doing it, you know, who, you know, when we do things for the environment, is it really for the environment or is it for human beings? Is it just for human beings and other animals? Is it for all living beings in general? Is it for ecosystems? Yeah, why are we doing it? Who are we doing it for? There's another way of doing environmental ethics. Uh, I call it environmental action ethics. It's not really been recognized in the academic literature. And this says... Um, what action should we be prioritizing? Should we be trying to preserve nature, you know, as it is untouched by humans? Should we be trying to conserve it, um, you know, seen as a kind of resources to conserve? Should we be trying to restore it because so much of it's been destroyed already? 
Or, and this is where biomimicry comes in, uh, should we be trying to imitate it? Right. So there's that question of, you know, what are the key actions we should be we should be doing? And then there's another way of doing environmental ethics, which is to look at the agent and say, well, what virtues should they be trying to cultivate? Okay. So it's not, you know, who are we doing it for? It's not what actions are we doing, but how can we cultivate environmental virtue and which environmental virtues should we be trying to cultivate? I, I mentioned one of them already, humility. Right, this idea of not seeing ourselves as better than nature. Um, temperance is another, you know, moderation, temperance. Um, the, the etymology of the word temperance basically is observing proper measure, right? And so I would interpret temperance as, um, you know, observing nature's measure, right? This kind of ecological measure. Um, what other virtues are there? Um, you know, openness towards nature, openness to what you can learn from nature, attunement to nature, right? Being attuned to, you know, local energy flows for renewable energies, um, to the seasons, to what is available locally, these sorts of things. Um, yeah, there's, there's a whole set of virtues that, you know, environmental virtue ethicists have developed, but I kind of interpret all these virtues a bit differently because I'm coming at it from the point of view of biomimicry. Wow. Yeah, that's that's thought-provoking. I had a guest last week um, who wrote a book called What School Doesn't Teach You, and one of the key parts of that podcast uh, episode was gratitude and his, his, his way of highlighting gratitude and how it is almost in short supply in different arenas in society. And I find if you come at most problems from a, gratitude mindset you look at it entirely different the problem no longer becomes a versus battle you between the problem it's now for lack of a better word a, a holistic approach to the problem you you look at or it gives you the access to look at all sides digging up minerals from the earth might help humans but how does it help different species yeah i mean you can you can definitely try and cultivate gratitude towards nature you know, think of all the things that nature does for us. Uh, you know, economists talk about all, all the ecosystem services that nature provides, right? Clean air, clean water, food, uh, climate regulation, all, all of these things, all of these things that nature's doing for us. But it's not enough just to take all of that. You're right. You know, I, I do think you need to be grateful for it. Absolutely. And one thing that we can be grateful for is chapter four, nature is mental. You say how biomimicry relates to feminism, indigenous people and others. How did you draw that distinction? One, one thing I'd just like to say before talking about indigenous um, people and indigenous epistemologies is that conventional epistemology, right? So epistemology, as it is taught and studied in universities in Britain and America and elsewhere, does not recognize nature as a source of knowledge. Right. What it says, what everyone gets taught at university is that there are five different sources for knowledge. Um, there's the senses, there's reason, there's introspection, there's memory, and then there's testimony, i.e. what other people tell us. Right. And what all of these things have in common is that knowledge in all of them is coming from human beings right it's coming from our cognitive faculties or from other human beings the idea that there may already be a knowledge in nature and that we may access that knowledge is is completely absent from contemporary epistemology 
So, you know, you've got all the brainiest philosophers in the world thinking about all of this stuff and, and somehow they haven't really ever discussed this idea that we get knowledge from nature. Not really. It's not become a, a sort of major topic in, in, in philosophy journals. Um, and yet, on my argument, this is key to sustainably inhabiting the earth, right? Because there's so much we could learn from how natural systems work that would allow us to inhabit the earth sustainably. Um, but that is an idea that you do get in indigenous epistemologies. Um, you get it in the ancient Greeks up to a point. You get it also in um, Eastern philosophies. Uh, Taoism is, is the key example. Now, I'm not an expert on this, but um, a colleague of mine, Freya Matthews, also works on the philosophy of biomimicry. Um, she talks about how in Taoism, there's this idea that you fought like Tao means the way. Right. So you like follow the way. Uh, and, that, and that is, you know, this is kind of the way of nature. Right. The way is everywhere. It's in nature and we need to follow, follow the way. And there's this principle of Taoism, Wu Wei, which Freya Matthews talks about. Wu Wei is this idea of, of it gets translated often as non-action, but it doesn't mean sitting there doing nothing. Right. Not getting up in the morning. It means um, effortless action or following the path of least resistance. And she sees this as a, a really sort of powerful lesson that nature has to, to teach us, right? This idea of following the path of least resistance. Um, and she gives an example of a, a Taoist governor in China you know, several hundred years before the birth of, uh, of Jesus Christ. Um, and so this, this, uh, this governor, he was faced with the problem of what to do when um, the, the river Min, I think it was, uh, flooded, right? Because it was devastating the villages and the fields and so on. Now, the, the sort of modern, you know, industrial revolution mindset would say, well, let's build some massive dams to protect everything, right? Which basically is, is being, you know, against nature. Nature's trying to do one thing. Um, but drawing on this Taoist idea of the path of least resistance, what he did was he, he made all these canals in the countryside, which meant that when the um waters of, of the river rose instead of catastrophically flooding everything they went into all these channels and all the fish and so on could pass along these channels right so it's kind of you know let, letting other beings you know live, live their lives and it also you know provided nutrients for the fields as as, as floods do and this system built over 2000 years ago is still in operation today, right? That's how sustainable, that's how durable it is. So you can go and visit it in, in contemporary China. Uh, and that's not a classic example of biomimicry, you know, copying, you know, some plant to make Velcro, but it's kind of accessing, you know, the deeper principles of nature, right? This idea of, you know, the path of least resistance and then implementing that um in, in in ways that allow us to you know inhabit the earth sustainably in harmony with other beings and so on wow all i can say is wow to that um the the different thoughts that i had while you were saying that were quite uh, best categorized as optimistic for the future um i am starting to feel that that's going to be a uh when watching this back that's going to be a key theme into this uh podcast is having optimism for the future that's that's another virtue that's another of the virtues I list, optimism. Yeah, yeah, right. How do you find getting rid of fossil fuels? Do you find, um, I, I probably know that this isn't your area of expertise, so feel free to pass the question. So how can we then course correct from where we are now into a more, for lack of a better word, symbiotic relationship in the future with biomimicry at the hall? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, you know, we're going to have to try and 
transition away from fossil fuels pretty rapidly. Um, it's all very well to say, you know, we should be be learning from nature and that can be a paradigm for the next, you know, you know, several hundred years or whatever. Um, but if we don't start doing this quite soon, or very soon, in fact, and at scale, um, you know, you were saying I'm optimistic, but, you know, if we've got six degrees of climate change, the idea of a different civilization may be out of the window because civilization may have collapsed, right? So, I mean, I do, I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I don't have a lot of skepticism personally towards, you know, the scientists, you know, um, who, who are telling us that climate change is what it is. You know, we need to do something about it rapidly and that these are the technologies that we have today that will allow us to do that. That just needs to be done. Um, where, where I suppose I'm a bit more skeptical is the idea that, that you know, things like solar panels are the ultimate answer. Um, there may be a short-term solution, but they're going to come with their own problems. You know, all the, you know, it, it's still, in a sense, the industrial revolution. It's still working very differently from nature, from you know, leaves, nature solar panels. Um, you know, they use tons of rare earth metals that are coming from you know mines all over the planet that are very destructive. There's all sorts of toxic pollutants associated with their production. The same goes with the batteries we're using, right? These lithium-ion batteries. And again, we can we can look to nature to you know go beyond solar panels and lithium ion batteries, right? There are better ways of doing things than that. So we need to do that in the short term. But there's there's a danger in sort of going all in on that and thinking that's the answer. You know, we also need to be thinking a bit further ahead at the same time and sort of saying, well, you know, working in parallel on other technologies that might take us beyond solar panels. I know that's a bit futuristic. I mean, in a sense, I don't really have an answer to the really short-term question. Though maybe, just to sort of join up with something you were saying earlier, recognising that there needs to be a new sort of paradigm for innovation based on learning from nature. I mean, if we could at least get that idea across and agree on that, that might help it, it be done, you know. Um, because I think if you look at what politicians are doing, they don't have that sort of level of, of joined-up foundational thinking. It's... Oh, okay. Um, you know, I can score a few points if I have this project here. I'll announce that, and then we won't put the money into it. And, and five years later, nothing actually happened with it. You know, I mean, you know, that there needs to be commitment. That's another virtue. We need there needs to be commitment to the environmental agenda, not just kind of short-term point scoring. And yeah, maybe uh, we'll save that part for another discussion. Um... Henry Dix, thank you very much for this conversation. If we tie this one home, where can people find you and where can they find the work that you're doing? Um, well, I've got a website called uh, philosophyandbiomimicry.org. So I have, uh, you know, all my articles are on there. I didn't just want to have a personal website. I wanted to bring together all the work being done in the field that I work in. There aren't that many people doing it, but, you know, I talked about Freya Matthews. There's some of her work there. Um, there are other philosophers, a Dutch guy called Vincent Block. There, there are various people whose work you'll find on this website if you're interested in exploring this idea more. There's also my book, The Biomimicry Revolution, Learning from Nature, How to Inhabit the Earth. So that was just published by Columbia University Press. Um, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on the Columbia website. If you buy it on the Columbia website, use the code CUP20 and you get 20% off. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Henry.